Live from Cap Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. The new year traditionally brings a sense of renewal and hope, but in California, the level of destruction and loss we've collectively experienced in just the first weeks of 2023 is heartbreaking and extraordinary. The wave of powerful storms earlier this month damaged homes, businesses, and claimed the lives of at least 22 people throughout the state. And just as the storms eased, all too familiar tragedies descended upon us. So far this month, at least 25 people have been killed in mass shootings in California, from the Bay Area to the Central Valley and Los Angeles. The weight of these heavy events and the media coverage that follows can be a lot to bear, even for those who aren't directly connected to them. We're going to spend some time this morning to learn more about these indirect traumas and what coping mechanisms and resources are out there for those who may be suffering from secondary or collective trauma. Trauma. Joining us is Dr. Njali Amin, a clinical psychologist and president of the Asian American Psychological Association. Dr. Amin, welcome to Insight. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I'd just like to start off by asking how you've been processing the recent events, not only as a psychologist, but also someone who's based in Los Angeles, where one of the mass shootings in our state unfolded. Well, I would say it's been a pretty tough week. Um, I've been just trying to take time to connect with my colleagues and talk about what's happening to acknowledge how I'm feeling in response to the events and also just trying to be a support to those around me. Given that mass violence and natural disasters are, of course, traumatic events for those directly impacted, but what can be the impact of these types of events on people who may not be directly impacted, but in some way feel a personal connection? There are a lot of ways that um, exposure to acts of violence, natural disasters, or other trauma can impact our mental well-being in a negative way. We often refer to this as secondary trauma, and it's a process that we see a lot with first responders, medical professionals, those who are routinely exposed to trauma. But research shows us that exposure to traumatic events through the media can lead the observer to experience a similar response, including anxiety, difficulty coping, feelings of helplessness, and even immense fear. It's really normal in these situations for folks to feel powerless to experience strong emotions. When it comes to these terms secondary and collective trauma, are they interchangeable or are they different? Um, Secondary trauma often refers to something maybe an individual is experiencing, and collective trauma is something we think about as maybe something a community as a whole is experiencing. When we think about um, the recent shootings, we want to think about how the Asian American community at large might be holding collective trauma in response to some of these events. Given that you are the president of the Asian American Psychological Association, what conversations have you been having with your colleagues? Honestly, we've just been talking about how we've been feeling, how we've been responding, um, what we can do together to support our community and to to enable a process of perseverance, perseverance and resilience in the wake of these tragedies. How do you recommend when talking about collective trauma? I mean, these are we're talking about a community, but, you know, it also can be strangers within a community. What is the best way to heal from collective trauma? So, you know, I'm a really strong believer in connecting to the community around us. And I think in moments like this, 
it's been proven time and time again how valuable um, and healing it is to connect with our community. You know, the systems we have in place are not built well enough to help us through the complexity of these moments. And so the healing we need often comes from community support. So I encourage folks to think about how you can connect with others, whether near or far, um, attending the vigils, calling up the people you care about, talking, dialoguing, expressing with others. You know, when we gather in community, it really gives us the opportunity to connect with our bodies through things such as collective breathing, with our hearts through individual reflection, and with one another through space, and even just sharing and being silent together. How should people talk about what's happened this week and in the first, you know, three weeks of the year? Well, you know, I think it starts with the willingness to have difficult conversations, um, acknowledging within ourselves what we might be feeling emotionally, saying the hard stuff and sharing our stories. You know, oftentimes we may feel a sense of shame or guilt, um, grief, and, and those are emotions that are very powerful. And we often maybe might feel inclined to hide them from others. But when we talk about our experiences, when we share them, we take away the power that those emotions can have. Have. So we have to just keep promoting conversations on the difficult topics that come up in all of our spaces in response to these events. And it can feel relentless. And given that you you also teach and you train psychology trainees, medical residents and other healthcare professionals about, you know, how, how to process, you know, these traumas that can feel relentless coupled with years of the pandemic. How has the prevalence of, you know, mass shootings and we're talking about natural disasters, but also, you know, uh, three plus years of a pandemic and, and getting a front row seat to that and the trauma that follows. How has that impacted your teaching? in your training? Uh, Very much so. You know, I think the unfortunate reality is the seeming regularity with which collective trauma is occurring in the world around us. And one of the things we really notice within the mental health field is this is a time where our providers, our healers are going through the same things, the same traumas that the folks are who they're helping. And so that definitely takes a toll. Um, And a lot of what I've been incorporating into my teaching is just coming back to the basics, making sure you're checking in with yourself on a daily basis, asking yourself, how are you today? What are you feeling? What do you need? And just really coming back to that act of naming and acknowledging our emotions. You know, an important goal with some of these basic kind of processes is agency, which is the thing that's so often and taken from us in and after moments of traumatic loss. Given that the AAPI community in California and also just across the country has seen an alarming rise in hate crimes, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, I think there were reported incidents increasing by over 170 percent between 2020 and 2021. But given that the suspects and the majority of the victims in both the mass shootings in Monterey Park and Half Moon Bay are of Asian descent, how does that impact the anxiety level of a community that's already been on edge the last few years? 
Yeah, well, I think this is incredibly relevant when we consider what you just referenced, right? The past two to three years for the Asian American community and the sharp rise in anti-Asian hate. You know, we're not stranger to this. This has been a part of our history um, since the early 1800s. But when I think about the broad array of diasporas that often make up our Asian American community, I often consider the meaning of safety and I see it as a common thread. So for a lot of us, our stories, our family histories, they involve taking fe- taking risk, fear, vulnerability, all of which heighten and prioritize safety and survival in our lives. And as I said before, many of our AAPI communities have trauma in their histories. So when we experience this additional trauma, it only exacerbates the fear and the need to implement safety. And that can be incredibly taxing on the body, both individually and collectively, to be in a sustained heightened sense of fear is really detrimental to our physical, emotional, and spiritual health. Do you think the past couple years and the isolation and um, even even the stigma that's attached to the pandemic is contributing to to a rise in violence that, that, that we've been seeing in just the few weeks of the year? You know, I I think what these events truly shed light on is just the issue of gun violence in America. And as many of my colleagues have pointed out, the reality is that we live in a country where a majority of us can readily gain access to these weapons legally or illegally. And for Asian Americans and other minoritized communities, the violence that's occurred both within and against us is really rooted in a long history of oppression, white supremacy and misogyny. And when we consider the health and well-being of our communities, we have to also integrate conversations on gun violence. Hmm. And and also adding to that is, you know, a historical stigma of surrounding mental health and taking care of your mental health. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we know that the AANHPI community uses mental health services the least of all racial ethnic groups in the U.S. And when we do seek help, we often only do so when our symptoms are the most severe or at their worst. But I don't think that means we're not engaging in healing or processing at all. And when we think about just the diversity within our, within our community, that healing and coping may look different in that we may be accessing more of our ancestral wisdoms and traditions than we are utilizing traditional Western mental health services. Um, You know, a lot of the traditional Western ways of addressing mental health don't often take into account our distinct cultures, our languages, our ways of healing, and that adds additional barriers to utilizing those types of services. Right. Those barriers and trauma are generational. I mean, many people, they they come here because they are refugees, they're fleeing war, they're trying to figure out a new culture, a new language, as well as, you know, discrimination as well. And these get compounded and layered as uh, even as it continues through generations, going back generations, correct? Absolutely. And, you know, when we leave that trauma untreated, it wreaks havoc on our lives. And even when we think we've put it away or we're functioning and carrying on in spite of it, it will find a way to permeate our well-being. And this has the potential to impact generations, creating what you just talked about, intergenerational trauma and grief. So addressing our trauma is essential to our healing. It's what allows us to remain healthy, to endure in the long term. How do you recommend younger generations, if if they want to heal this generational trauma, how do they do so? Where do they begin? You know, I think it's important to just consider, again, the willingness to have those difficult conversations. 
And it really starts individually with us. And then we can sort of connect with our communities. So, you know, again, can I check in with myself on a regular basis? How am I doing? What am I feeling and holding? What do I need? And then once we've processed our emotion, we can more easily come to a space of taking action. And I recommend that folks connect with the things within their reach to start small. We can't always solve the bigger problems of the world, but we can still do the things that align us with our values and that keep us in touch with the person that we want to be. Given that, you know, these these big issues, I mean, they can feel overwhelming. And the media coverage surrounding mass shootings and natural disasters and other really trying and painful events can be triggering. How do you recommend people process the news and the coverage? Well, my number one recommendation is to take a break from the news and the media. You know, we're not built to take in a constant stream of stress and anxiety. Our bodies and our minds just can't handle that. So we have to find time to disconnect, to connect with our present moment, and to do so on a consistent basis. So I often challenge my clients, my trainees to ask themselves, can I turn off the screen, the alerts, the notifications, even just for a couple minutes today? And if I can do two minutes today, can I work up to five minutes next week? And when we're consistent with this, it helps us build the habit and it turns this into a lifelong practice. What would you like to say changed in the way these traumatic events are covered in a way that perhaps could be more thoughtful and even reduce harm? Yeah, you know, I think that we're seeing a little bit of a shift in this already. And I think just shifting focus to the community rather than trying to uncover the complexities of the perpetrator, why it was done, what was done, what what are the motives? But, you know, what can be so powerful for folks to do is to just provide space for those who are impacted to acknowledge and process the impact of these events. You know, we often find ourselves in spaces that ignore the existence of trauma, but those spaces don't need to be um, purposed in that way. They can be radical spaces of possibility. And we can ask ourselves, you know, what can I do for my colleague, my student, my friend, my community member to promote their healing? When it comes to resources, what is available to to help yourself or to help a loved one cope with, you know, maybe some distress or anxiety that they're feeling due to the events over the last month? There are a lot of resources, and I think that's one of the wonderful things that I've seen come up as conversations about mental health have gained traction. So I always refer folks to the Crisis Lifeline 988, which is a wonderful resource if you're finding yourself in high distress and you need support. The National Alliance on Mental Illness has a number of really great resources. And I always encourage folks to check out the National Coalition of Asian Pacific Americans, which is a coalition of 38 national Asian Pacific American organizations around the country. It's based in D.C., but it represents the interests of the greater Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander community within the states. And they do a lot of wonderful work to help our communities. Finally, Dr. Amin, how do you care for your own mental health? That's a great question. Um, I try really hard just to stay present in the moment. Um, You know, trauma has a way of keeping us stuck in the past and the future. And so my simple goal each day is to just do my daily check-in, to be present in the moment, to ground, to connect with the things that feel meaningful for me, and to rest. Um, Rest is a form of resistance, and I often encourage it with folks. 
Thank you so much for the advice and your time. Thank you. Dr. Unjali Amin is a clinical psychologist and president of the Asian American Psychological Association, explaining secondary and collective trauma as well as resources available to help. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, CAP Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Bees pollinate many of our favorite foods like almonds, apples, and even 90% of all berries. But according to the Department of Agriculture, there has been significant yearly declines in honeybee colonies for more than a decade, since 2006. Researchers have listed many possible causes to the decline, which includes pests, diseases, and pesticides. Dolan Animal Health recently received conditional approval from the USDA for a bee vaccine that targets it's a bacterium which is deadly to colonies and destroys hives. Joining us to talk about the vaccine and how it was developed is Amy Floyd with Dolan Animal Help. Good morning. Hi, good morning. How, uh, thanks for having me. Thank you for making the time. How long has Dolan Animal Health been around? Uh, we actually just celebrated our fourth birthday in December. And do you exclusively work on bees? Uh, right now, the company is focused on honeybees, uh, but the goal in the future is to expand to to other invertebrates and other insects. So, so if you can help unpack this vaccine uh, for us, there are a range of threats to honeybee colonies. What does this vaccine do? Sure. So there's lots of, like you said, lots of things that affect honeybees. Um, and there are a lot of tools and things out there to help with a lot of those problems. But American fowl brood is a, a bacterial pathogen that affects um, the larva, the developing larva of honeybees. And there aren't really a lot of good options for beekeepers. So this is a, a hole in the tool belt of beekeepers that um, we wanted to help fill. What impact does American fowl brood have on just the overall health of bee populations? Um, so our, as of now, American fowl brood um, is kind of on the the towards the bottom of the list of huge impacts, but it is something that beekeepers have to consider. And so if we can kind of help get rid of this, this worry for them, um, they can focus on, on other things like mites and um, mm. climate change and lack of forage. Right. So since it's a bacterium, can you, bacterium, can you explain how it spreads? Sure. So American fowl brood is caused by a bacteria called Painobacillus larvae, and it is spore forming. And so uh, those spores can live for decades in the hive environment, in, in soil, on trees, and um, that it'll be in a vegetative state. And then a worker bee will consume it and then feed it to a larva. And then in that larva, um, it'll, ex it'll re start reproducing and um, can, can produce 2.5 billion spores just in that one larva. And then it rapidly uh, spreads throughout the hive. And then, and then what do, um, I guess, farmers have to do if they're, if that actually takes place? I mean, do they have to, they essentially have to destroy the hives? Correct. So because it's spore forming, um, antibiotics may help suppress it, but it does, it will not get rid of it. Um, so the recurrence rate is pretty high. So the, right now the protocol is to burn um, that hive 
um, to, to really make sure you get rid of those spores. And you mentioned that there are currently antibiotics, but they're limiting. So what exactly does this vaccine do? So this vaccine helps protect larvae right when they hatch from getting infected with those spores. So they're, they're primed. Their immune system is ready to fight them right when they hatch. How are these honeybees treated with the vaccine? How does it, how does it work? I would imagine it's not a little tiny needle, right? <laughs> no, it is not. So the mechanism is called transgenerational immune priming, which essentially means we feed it to the mother and it gets passed on to her offspring. So what happens is the vaccine gets fed um, to the queen via workers uh, because queens don't feed themselves mm-hmm. And then the queen um, digests it, it moves into her fat bodies, and then it attaches to a protein that goes into the egg yolk of the developing larva, and that primes them and their immune system, and when they hatch, they're protected. Mm. What does USDA conditional approval for this vaccine mean? So conditional approval means that they they like where we're headed, we're in the right direction, um, they really see the need for this in the, the industry, so They've um, we don't have all of our data yet, but we're we we've showed um, some lab studies that that our proof of concept to help um, uh, get this out there and get it into the hands of, the, of honeybees sooner than later. And we still have a, a long way to go. We still have a lot of studies in the works to um, to keep keep working on it, essentially. Right. So given that you're still very much in the process of learning more about this vaccine, what are some of the big unknowns or even unintended consequences that you're working to figure out? Um, that's a great question. There are um, where we've gotten it into the, the field so far um, in some commercial operations, but we're still kind of collecting that data um, and um, just just kind of little little tiny details. We have a lot of the proof of concept. We've done a lot of lab challenge experiments. Um, these things are it's hard to test a, a bacterial pathogen in the field because we don't want to infect hives and risk mm-hmm. an outbreak. So we have to do a lot of the testing within the lab. So a lot of um, the work now is looking at it within the hive. Given that this is receive conditional approval. Any idea when this vaccine could potentially be on the market and available? Uh, yeah. So the um, we're shooting for late spring of 2023 for it to be available to beekeepers. Oh, so just right around the corner. Yeah. <laughs> what response have you been getting from the beekeeping community? Uh, there's a lot of excitement, um, a lot of um, wanting to to try it very curious how it works want they want to make sure it's not impacting the hive in certain ways and um but really i think this is a hole in the in the treatment realm that needed to be filled so so far we've gotten a lot of interest great well thank you so much amy for joining us yeah of course thank you amy floyd is with Thalen animal health the makers of a honeybee vaccine that received conditional approval from the USDA. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. (music) 
Western honeybees still have plenty of other challenges as we're learning to recover from declining hive populations. This new vaccine is just one solution. We're going to learn more about what other issues and solutions exist for the Western honeybee. Ramesh Sagili is an associate professor of apiculture at Oregon State University and collaborates with beekeepers in the Western United States. Thanks for joining us. So my pleasure, Vicky. Thanks for your interest in bees. So your wheelhouse are, are bees and honeybees, and you've studied honeybees extensively. What is the current state of Western honeybees and their population? Yeah, I know honeybees are really important pollinators, as we all know, but uh, they have been facing multitude of stressors for the last 20 years, I would say, especially uh, with parasites, pathogens, uh, poor nutrition, as you mentioned, I think, in your earlier segment, uh, including exposure to pesticides as well. Uh, so for the past two decades, uh, beekeepers in the United States uh, have been having at least uh, annual losses ranging between 30 to 35 percent, which is uh, pretty much you can think of if you are in a cattle or a sheep business, losing 30 or 35 percent really puts you out of business. But being an insect, I know there are ways to uh, get those populations back, uh, but it takes a lot of effort from beekeepers, um, both financially as well as uh, physically. So. So that's what we are at this point. I think we still have enough bees. I know sometimes we hear a lot about uh, the scary scenario that we will not have enough honeybees for pollination. Uh, but I think as of today, we still have enough or adequate number of hives to do our pollination business. But it's the worry that the beekeepers are not making much profits. So that's what worries me is the beekeeping industry is in trouble. So we need to look at this in a different angle, not just uh, about honeybee populations. You touched upon this, that there are a variety of health challenges to the Western honeybee. Uh, we were talking about American fowl brood with our previous guest and this uh, new vaccine that received conditional approval from the USDA. How significant is American fowl brood and this bacterium to honeybee populations? Yes, American fowl brood is a serious disease uh, of larvae. I think as Amy said in the previous segment, it's a real disease which uh, is very concerning to beekeepers and the only resort they have is to burn those hives. So again, uh, honeybees uh, have a lot of other problems. American fowl brood doesn't come to the top of the list. Somewhere there in uh, the, the lower end of the list. Uh, but there are other issues, like as mentioned, the varroa mites are still a major, major challenge. Uh, so varroa is an ectoparasite, just for your audience. Uh, it feeds on the abdominal fat bodies and also sucks a little bit of the blood, which is called hemolymph. And they transmit at least seven or eight different serious lethal viruses. And these viruses are a real challenge for those bees. And that's why we see a lot of population declines happening, mostly due to varroa mites. And then there is uh, poor nutrition. As you know, we have changed our landscape a lot in the last 20 years. So there is less forage available for bees in their environment. So I think that's another major challenge. Uh, uh, poor nutrition would be, I would say, second in the list. And then, of course, bees are used extensively for pollination purposes. So they are inadvertently exposed to pesticides as well. So, so again, there is a lot of documentation on that end as well. But again, those are the three main ones, I would say. But there are so many other uh, stressors that are there uh, apart from these uh, fall root diseases that we discussed. When looking at the ripple effects of these declining populations, I mean, you mentioned concern for the beekeeping industry. Given that California, Oregon, and Washington produce also many crops that are reliant on pollination from bees, how is how are, how is the decline in beehive populations affecting the broader agricultural industry? 
Yeah. So again, uh, pollination prices is one thing you have to look at. I think that uh, again boils down to our customers eventually. So when you don't have adequate populations or healthy colonies for pollination, uh, then it impacts the pollination of the crop that you're looking at. And that would uh, drive again, like almond is a major industry, again, where you are in California, about 75% uh, of the United States beekeepers go down. They are actually right now on the road traveling to California for almond pollination. Almonds will be blooming soon in February. So, so those are the problems where they will face is they will not have adequate bees sometimes for pollination that increases their price. That means the the farmers that are renting those bees, they have to pay higher price to the beekeeper to rent those hives. And that would trickle down again to the customers eventually like us that are feeding off, that are reliant on those uh, incredible foods that uh, bees pollinate. Do bees travel long distances or do they pretty much kind of stay, you know, in a general area when they're pollinating? So, yeah, that's a great question. So bee foraging is, again, a, a very interesting topic, uh, given the fascinating social biology of honeybees. So they can go like maybe three three miles as well from their hive but give, if they don't have any food. But given if there is a resource close by, they are very intelligent as well. So they will not uh, expend their energy just going three miles for no reason. So they will be foraging close by. Like if you are in almonds right now, and if the almonds bloom and there is no way, they have to go anywhere else. There is enough uh, abundant pollen and nectar source there. So they may just rely within a few hundred yards from their nest or the hive. Yeah, and we're talking about honeybees, but there I also think about bumblebees as well. There are different bee species. What, what makes them different? Yeah, so yeah, again, uh, bee, bees are so diverse. Honeybees are just one which we all know because uh, we all love our honey and and it's a domesticated or managed honeybee. So we know more about honeybees, but there are so many solitary bees that many of them probably, we, we as citizens have not even seen them because they nest underground. We call them solitary bees. But honeybees are the most uh, uh, social, or we use that scientific term social because it's the most advanced sociality you can see in an insect. And so, so there are other bees like bumblebees that we are aware of, they are semi-social. So, uh, so there are other bees as well, which probably we don't pay attention to because uh, honeybees are the dominant one in the news all the time. So again, I, did you want to know the differences between those? Or? Yeah, and I guess in terms of pollination, are, are honeybees like the biggest pollinators or do they all share that equally? Yeah, so because honeybees are managed pollinators, right? Right now, most of your bumblebees, they are nesting underground in the soil. So those queens, the new queens, so, so bumblebee biology is very different than honeybees. So they will not survive as a group the winter. Right now, your hives, all those bees have survived the winter and they are back pollinating your crop in spring. But what happens with bum bumblebees and many other solitary bees is uh, only the new queens that are mated, they survive and they go into the soil and uh, hibernate until spring comes. But as honeybees, you can manage them in these boxes or the honeybee hives that you see. So that's what they are manageable and you can move them distantly from different states. So there are bees coming from Florida, Maine, Oregon, where I am. They're all uh, descending down into California for pollination because you can move them as you want. And then when they have the foraging weather, that's the important part. As long as temperatures are close to 50 degrees Fahrenheit, honeybees will forage and do the pollination. So that's a major difference between these uh, solitary bees or semi-social bees with a eusocial insect like honeybees is honeybees can be used uh, for pollination purposes. And that's why honeybees are so reliable 
for managing those pollination services when there are no other bees around. But bumblebees do a great job in greenhouse pollination and many other scenarios as well. Are there special characteristics with a honeybee that makes it more social and more capable of being manageable and even domesticated? Yeah, that's what we have managed. Honeybees have evolved for most more than 30 million years ago, and now we have domesticated them for at least thousands of years now. So we know what their social biology is. I know we don't uh, mimic everything a honeybee will do in a wildness, but we have come very close managing them in those boxes that you see. We give them those frames where they can build their comb. And so I think uh, the knowledge, or at least the, the domesticated bee knowledge is so much available now that you can easily manage them and use for your pollination services and even honey production. Given that some uh, bees, like bumblebees, I believe, they're classified as endangered under the 1970s Threatened and Endangered Species Act. Are honeybees given the same level of protection? No, they are not. So the interesting story here is honeybees are not native to North America. They were introduced around 1600s from European settlers, and they bought them just for honey production. They They didn't even envision that we will be reliant on them for pollination. But eventually our cropping systems have changed. The almonds that you have in California, about maybe 2 million acres, almonds are not native to North America. They are somewhere in Iran or some of that region. So those were introduced here and now California is the largest producer of almonds in the world. So we have changed our cropping system as well. And we have become more reliant on these bees. So so native bees are there. Bumblebees were there before uh, in, before we started anything here in terms of pollination. So we don't have enough bees for the needs that we have created over the last few decades. Uh, almond is a good example, but again, there are so many crops you can think of. So without honeybees, you can't think of a lot of foods that we eat today, mostly fruits and vegetables and nuts. So, so that's the reason why it's a not native, non-native species. So there are no uh, uh, rules or regulations on protecting it because it's not a native species that you can have an endangered species act uh, uh, put on those type of insects. And again, we have, as I said before, we have enough uh, honeybee populations at this time for our pollination needs. So I don't think uh, uh, there is a real discussion at this point of uh, honeybees being included in this uh, endangered species. Yeah, your knowledge of this is is clearly so vast. What actually interested you in the beginning about apiculture? Uh, so you're asking me how I got into yeah. this? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's a question I get all the time, right? So, uh, so I'm originally from India and I came to the United States to pursue a PhD from Texas A&M University uh, around 2002. And so my background was in agriculture. So I did my bachelor's and the master's in agriculture. And at that time, I mean, I, I saw my grandparents really struggling to have pollination needs met, especially they were growing this hybrid sunflower. Whereas, you know, hybrid sunflowers, you have to have cross-pollination. They can't just uh, uh, provide seed without pollination. So the cross-pollination has to happen by transferring your pollen between those two different flower heads that you see. So because of uh, low population uh, uh, levels uh, of bees, my grandparents were hiring people to have wear gloves and they would go and uh, touch each flower with their with their palm, rub it, and then that's how they're transferring pollen between those two uh, varieties. And that then I was still young and I asked my grandparents, why are we doing this with hand? And they said, because we don't have enough bees here. And there are several reasons why there were not enough bees for uh, meeting the pollination needs. but. So that was my initial uh, exposure to the importance of bees, but I didn't 
think that I would study bees at that point of time in high school. But eventually, when I was doing my bachelor's in uh, agriculture in India, I took a class in uh, apiculture. And that really piqued my interest. And uh, I really wanted to do something related to entomology. And uh, honeybees were the ones that I chose uh, to be a part of my uh, graduate program. And that's how I ended up uh, doing a PhD at Texas A&M. And then in 2009 on, you have seen all the declines that have been in the news. And so I'm really grateful that uh, I studied something that would be useful in the future. Professor Sugili, thank you so much for the time. Thanks, Vicky, and thanks for your interest in bees. Yeah, I learned a great deal. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Ramesh Sagili is an associate professor of apiculture at Oregon State University and collaborates with beekeepers across the western coast. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicky Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Welcome back to Inside on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. If you have been joining us on Thursdays, you may have noticed recurring discussions focused on issues of equity surrounding the classical music industry. These discussions and conversations have varied in themes that focus on representation, diversity and programming, and what is needed to give a larger stake at the table to all. These conversations are part of Cap Radio's new podcast, A Music of Their Own, hosted by Majel Connery, which shares the stories of women who carved out success in classical music despite the odds and opportunities being stacked against them. Majel joins us now to celebrate the music and the talent behind these extraordinary women. Hello, Majel. Welcome. Hey, Vicky. Nice to be back. How are you? Oh, we're doing wonderful. We're now coming. We have like a full circle moment happening this morning. You know, given that you're a vocalist, you're a composer, you're a musicologist, what has been like hosting a music of their own added to your lived experience as an artist that really intimately knows the challenges that you unpacked in this podcast? Oh, my gosh. I mean, so many things. But I think the main thing is that as artists, we are used to being machines who produce, who put out work, there is not a lot of time spent taking a step back and saying, what does all this mean? What is the status of what we're doing? Is it working? Are we getting through? I mean, there are a lot of breakthroughs happening in the wake of Me Too and since Black Lives Matter, but like there is not enough stock taking. And this podcast has enabled me and a group of other people to start a conversation about stepping back and assessing where we are. Are we making the kind of progress we want to be? And are we changing the conversation in the right way? So that's been awesome. Yeah, there is really power and meaning in slowing down and processing things. Yeah. And just the ability for me to become a public voice who is helping to moderate this larger conversation and lead it and guide it in ways that are hopefully sensitive to everyone involved and to give a voice to a group of artists who some some of them are are on their way to becoming quite famous, but others have yet to be discovered. And it's been really exciting to give them a platform to get their voices heard as well. Well, we're going to highlight and celebrate some of the artists that you spoke to on the podcast. Let's start off with Inti Figus Vizueta. What did you learn in your discussion with Inti? Well, look, Inti's work for me boils down to one of the core issues that this podcast addresses, which is 
can we say that there is a kind of feminine music? And if so, what does that sound like? Can women also write masculine music? Can men write feminine music? Inti, as a trans composer, has attempted to write a piece that is not only breathtaking and really beautiful, but tries to capture something about transness in its mm -hmm. composition and in the way it comes across. And I think that is both brave and really creative. So she has created this piece that is about shifting and duplication and transition. And, and when we listen to this piece, we are given some insight into what it feels like to be a trans woman. Well, let's take a quick listen to this piece, Music for Transitions, which was written for Andrew Yee. Wow, that is just so powerful. And I want to bring up a, a point because this is radio, obviously, so people can just listen to us. But you also highlight the video, correct, for, for this piece. Describe it for us. Yeah. So this was commissioned and produced during the pandemic when people were getting really creative with video. And this is one of the best most creative videos I saw during the pandemic period. It is carved into four horizontal bars that are stacked like pancakes. And each of these bars is a separate take of Andrew Yee's performance. So it, there is a sense that these four horizontal bars are both in sync and slightly out of sync. Sometimes you see the duplicate of a hand reaching into multiple spheres at once, or you see um, uh, you know, the, the trail of Andrew's little beautiful slippers disappearing from the frame. So it gives this sense of multiple inhabitants in the video, which is just something you, you can't totally do in music. So the two complement beautifully. Yeah. And, and this journey of identity, right? And, and capturing that as well, visually and also through music. Yeah, um, I think that Andrew Yee and Inti collaborated on this piece together. Um, they both have a very keen sense of how to explore identity that itself feels fractured or that feels multiple. And presenting that in an art form is the best way I think we have of discussing these things and of understanding them, especially from a cisgendered perspective like mine. Mm. We're now going to move to Wu Fei, and she actually joined us on Insight and was wonderful to speak with. And and uh, Wu Fei talked to us about the changes, big changes coming to Mills College in Oakland after a described restrictive music education in China. We're going to take a listen to an album that Fei worked on with folk singer Abigail Washburn, and this was for the Smithsonian Folkways, which is a nonprofit music label for the Smithsonian. So let's take a quick lesson. Ooh. 
about this is you kind of get this feel for Americana because there's like a folk singer and there's this bluegrass to it, but obviously very traditional Chinese classical music. And also I noticed that Abigail speaks Chinese as well. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? I mean, this collaboration is is like made in heaven. It is artistically so pure and so compelling, so arresting. It's one of those things that just knocks you over when you hear it. But it's also a perfect depiction of this artistic collaboration that is happening from thousands of miles away. Wu Fei could not really be a more different musician than Abigail Washburn in some sense. And yet their collision on this planet musically is so similar. They manage to sound like each other Mm -hmm. and to make these very different instruments from very different traditions blend so seemingly naturally together. Let's now move to Natalie Joachim. And what did you learn from Natalie, who's one part of the duo Fluxtronics? Yeah, so Natalie does many, many, many things. This is her most contemporary sounding electronic project. And it's cool because in the classical music space, there are very few Black women composers to begin with. Here, you have two of the most powerhouse classical Black women composers you could possibly imagine, and they are writing in a vein that is completely inimitable. So they have really heavy dominating electronics, but they're also using the flute, which I usually think of as kind of a wimpy instrument. It is this muscular, robust, loud, powerful thing. So it's a real statement, this music. Let's take a listen to Stacked. For a, for a quote, wimpy instrument, there's some athleticism <laughs> to, to, to this in, in this song. And we have two more artists that I want to make time for in the last couple minutes that we have. So we're going to move on to Angelica Negron and El Espanto. What stands out to you about Angelica? Well, 
first of all, Angelica was featured on the program because she struggles with an interesting paradox, which is that she has this really forward thinking, bold music that comes out of her, but she also has a very, very gentle, airy voice. And she's been criticized for using this gentle, airy voice in the context of Balloon, her ensemble. I happen to think, contrary to the criticism, that Angelica's voice belongs and works perfectly with this ensemble because if you had a big domineering voice on top of this already really large, pretty controlling music, it wouldn't work. It would be too much for us. But because her voice is so gentle and sweet, it just rides very easily on top of this very dense electronic instrumental texture. Well, let's take a listen to El Espanto. Wonderful. And in the last about 30, 45 seconds we have, I'm going to quickly play Sarah Snyder. But if you can just quickly tell us about who Sarah is. This is just a personal pick. This woman is responsible for helping me find my singing voice again after a decade of not singing. So I just think the world of her and this is the most moving music I know. Well, Majel, we're going to send it off with Sarah Snyder's piece. But I just want to thank you so much for joining us. And Thank the you podcast so much for me. is wonderful. Yeah. A music of their own hosted by Majel Connery. That is it for Insight. We will leave you with a wonderful weekend. Catch you back here on Monday. And here is Sarah Snyder's Unremembered Prelude.